0: Welcome back to the View Podcast. On today's episode, I welcome my guest, Allison Petsavis. Allison is a professor at the University of Illinois and is a film producer and writer. She and I discuss the representation of people with disabilities in film and how it can have an impact on society and their beliefs and stereotypes about those who have disabilities. I would like to welcome everyone back to another episode of the Hour View podcast, where we aim to educate, raise awareness, and change the tone of conversation about disabilities. I'm very happy to welcome my guest on today's show, Allison Patsavis, and I am so excited to hear you, uh, to to have you here uh, with us all, and um, to talk about uh, disabilities and the movies. Uh, You know, movies are a thing that most people enjoy, I think, and uh, they've, come, they've become very uh, easily available to us lately with uh, all of the Netflix and Amazon and uh, HBO Max <laughs> streaming services. Um, so uh, I'm really excited for our conversation today, and uh, welcome to the podcast.
1: It is a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: You're Welcome. Uh, So I'd like to start off my podcast with asking my guests to introduce themselves. So can you tell us who is Allison?
1: Yeah, um, I am a funny, that's, uh, maybe we could start actually by saying I'm used to people calling me Allie. So uh, I'm a little tripped (laughs) up by by the Allison. I was like, wait, who is Allison? I don't know. (laughs) So uh, I, I go by Allie, uh, Allie Patsavis. I am an assistant professor uh, in the Department of Disability and Human Development uh, at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Um, I am just turned 39 uh, and I have spent by now the majority of my life as a disabled person. Uh, so I, that's a funny thing to realize when you have sort of passed the midway point, um, Uh but I acquired my disability uh, in my teenage years. And so uh, really sort of lived a lot of my life not connected to disability community, but arrived at it through academic work actually. Um, And so for me, academics and disability activism and disability community are all sort of deeply tied together. And in a lot of ways, that is sort of the story of how I came to be interested in disability in film as well. Yeah. So somewhat circuitous answer, I suppose.
0: (laughs) I always like uh, asking that question because the answers are always so different uh, from everyone. So um, so I, I appreciate that. And um, so Allie, I will, <laughs> I will respect, respect I, Sorry.
1: Her. I'm so sorry. I should have said.
0: Uh. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. Cause I, I always get asked, well, do you go by art? Do you go by Arthur? And it's, it's a weird thing because my dad, um, I was named after my dad. So I was always Arthur. He was always art. But as I got older, my dad, um, My dad passed away when I was 17, but as I got older, people in my family and friends, they start calling me Art, and it just, you know, I answer to both, um, you know, (laughs) when when my mom calls me Arthur, that's when I get nervous, like, oh, no, (laughs) what did I do? Yeah, this is why I sort of balked at (laughs) who is Allison. So, Allie, uh, you briefly mentioned uh, how you got interested in uh, topics related to disabilities. Can you go into a little bit more about that and... um, especially in the film industry, how you became interested in in that?
1: Yeah, so I came to Chicago um, to do a PhD in disability studies. And Chicago has a wonderfully vibrant disability activist community and community of disabled artists. And so I was sort of initiated into this already vibrant, already sort of in, in place infrastructure um, of politicized and engaged disabled people. And when I started studying, um, I began working with uh, Dr. Carrie Sandall, who, uh who is now my colleague at UIC, who's a theater professor and disability studies scholar. And we were working, she was teaching a course on disability in American film, and I was her teaching assistant. Wow. Um, and simultaneously, the other two people who en- we ended up working with on Code of the Freaks, Salome Chasnov, who's a documentary filmmaker and activist in Chicago, and disabled playwright and novelist Susan Nussbaum, were sort of doing these series of community screenings of Hollywood clips for disabled people to kind of just respond to and talk back to. And people wanted to have that conversation, right? Yeah. <laughs> when you are a disabled person and you're used to seeing so many of these representations in film over and over and over again, there's something really powerful about getting in a room with other disabled people to talk about that. And so Carrie and I sort of got together with Susan and and Salome and decided there's something there's something here there's something in the space between the sort of academic tracing of these images and the impact they have on people and the community response to those images and so we embarked on what was an 11 year project of making Code of the Freaks, um, which is real Crip Time movie production, I guess. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, But, you know, that was really my entry point into this. I was, like many people, sort of an avid fan of film and television, right? Like, I Mm -hmm. love stories, and I love the logic of how stories unfold, and the ways that you can read them in so many complex and multiple ways, right? There's this kind of like what the film is telling you, but then there's so many, especially as a queer person, like Mm -hmm. there's so many ways to read a film or a show or a relationship kind of in more complex ways or to queer it in interesting ways. And so I found a lot of possibilities in analyzing film. Uh, And, through, I don't know how many conversations sitting in Susan's living room, we sort of hashed out the types of films we were seeing and what it meant to put them all together and sort of layer them on top of each other and what kind of story we could tell about the stories films are telling about disability. Right. Yeah, so Code of the Freaks is a feature length documentary film that traces representations of disability across Hollywood cinema from sort of early filmmaking to more contemporary films. We look at some of the most common tropes that you see across that imagery and feature disabled artists, activists, and scholars talking back to those images. And I think for us, you know, part of the work or part of the interest is in exposing what films themselves are showing, but it was also about using films as a way to tell a much larger story about how society views and understands and relates to disability and disabled people.
0: Yes. And the the one thing, um, so Code of the Freaks, that's the uh, documentary. And um, the one thing I really appreciated is that it, showed like the history of it, of how far back <laughs> things go with how, like you said, how people view those who have disabilities. And it's just like, oh my goodness, I can remember reading um, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird in high school yeah. and reading it and saying like, oh wait, that guy, he probably has, you know, a disability. He has, yeah, wow. Yeah. You know, and then to, yeah. you know, know that it was made into a film and, and just other films from you know, back in that time, where it's just like, wow, like they really, uh, you know, showed dis- people with disabilities in a, in a certain way. So I really appreciated that it um it went on to show like it wasn't it's not just a recent thing like it really yeah it it's not time. it's not just
1: a recent thing it's not just one film or one even one type of representation right um I mean one of one thing I was surprised to learn was that actually one of the very first films Thomas Edison's 1898 film was was called the fake beggar I believe was the name of it but it was a it was like a it's like a 13 second film about somebody faking disability and being caught um so in some ways disability is literally encoded in the origins of film uh it's it's that that deep in its history
0: wow (laughs) yeah some of the um which is what our conversation will be primarily about some of the themes that uh were discussed in the film that I found interesting that really uh grabbed my attention and I think um things that I was aware of that I noticed at the time but then the way um the themes really showed up in multiple movies is <laughs> something that I don't think I really related to, um, you know, until seeing them all put together. And it's like, oh yeah, that is the same storyline. That is the same thing that kind of happens in that other, in that other movie. So uh, I, I really appreciate it the way that, uh, you know, you all were able to um, string those uh, stories together and, and show the similarities between the way that uh, the, sto- the way the stories were told Um One of the things that I I did want to talk about is that was mentioned in uh, Movie Code of the Freaks is the danger of movies being used to show um, what all disabilities are like. The example that was given in the movie is Rain Man. So the main character there has um, autism. And I, I can remember growing up in the 80s and early 90s and people saying, you know, oh, like referring to autism as like, oh, you're like Rain Man and and it's like, no, that's not what it's you know, it's not like that for everyone. Yeah. So um can you can you talk about that and how how that can be a dangerous thing for movies to uh you know, kind of show like a blanket uh way of, of uh people having disabilities?
1: Yeah, I mean Rain Man is such an interesting example too, because you know sometimes when we talk about the ways that films work on our on our like within our cultural imagination people are, will say things like well it's just a film everybody knows films aren't aren't real life and i mean there's a couple of reasons why i wish it were that simple um that <laughs> yeah i'll never forget one of my first teaching experiences i was talking about kind of some of the dominant themes of disability in representation and a student in my class, She uh, she's a master's student and she had done a special education training and she said, oh yeah, uh, I watched Rain Man as part of my special education training so I could learn what autistic people are like. Oh. And it was such a concrete example of how films are teaching tools, like mm-hmm. both explicitly used in the classroom, But also, kind of less explicitly in our cultural imagination to, because if we don't have a counter to that, right, if we don't have experience with autistic people in our lives, we don't know that those images are narrative fabrications, or they are caricatures, or they're used to tell, you know, devices used to tell a particular kind of story, And they come to hold this kind of, I don't know, cemented image in our minds. And I think Lawrence Carter Long, who's a disabled activist and actor who we interview in Code of the Freaks, talks about how films like to repeat themselves. It's sort of part of how they work. And so once you have one representation that becomes kind of iconic, that becomes the measure against which other representations have to meet that standard to seem authentic, right? Right. Like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's not really authentic, authentic autism. And I'm using sort of scare quotes because you can't see me uh, is, (laughs) is, is is rain man. Uh, And so that the danger of that, I mean, danger is a really complicated word, right? But, Mm uh, it, it manifests in so many both explicit and implicit ways to shape how the world interacts with autistic people. From expectations that autistic people are supposed to be geniuses or, or magical or, or childlike, all of those images that get sort of concretized or, or made, made into this kind of cemented character of Rain Man are at work in everyday interactions that people who don't know any better have with autistic people. Right. And we can say the same thing about other representations or other types of disability, right? Like blindness is another kind of iconic disability representation that gets sort of that shapes how the world interacts with blind people. Right. Or and you know, in some ways you can you can almost put any disability type in that in that sentence and we can think of films that shape how the public views what those disability experiences are like.
0: Right, yeah, it's so true that you can definitely fill in the blank for, <laughs> with any disability and it's, uh It really does shape the way that, uh, you know, society views us as people with disabilities. And I, I liked what you said where um you know where people look to certain films like Rain Man and say like oh no this this other film is is not accurate because it doesn't you know he's not like the guy that played that <laughs> great role in in that other movie so uh you know and it, it's it's so important that we that we're talking about this um because it is film but then it's also real life because i've run into a situation in many times where uh i tell people i have spina bifida and it's just like, oh, well, I, I know somebody who has spina bifida and they, you know, they don't use crutches and, oh, uh, yeah. or I, I know somebody that has spina bifida and, and they, uh, you know, they're, they're really uh, skinny. They, they, you know, and it's just like, well, everybody is different. Yeah. <laughs> Literally everybody body but there's is no different. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah, there's no space for that, that right. complexity, that difference, that, that multitude because of the singular way that we think this is that disability right, right. Um, yeah
0: that's it that's all <laughs> it becomes,
1: yeah that's all period right yeah. <laughs> it, it just becomes so singular and defining that you know I, I mean a lack of representation comes with its own problems
2: mm-hmm.
1: right to to sort of say well there's no visibility people don't understand what what a particular type of disability is or or, or looks like but you know, there's some really interesting kind of theoretical arguments that say there's a lot of power in in not having your representation because you get to define it. Uh-huh. There are some, some schools of thought that really see that as there's lots of harms that come with a lack of visibility and a lack of representation, but it's also there are equal number of harms that come from this singular type of representation. Right. Right. And so... it's why we need to talk about them both, right? We need to talk about what it means to, for instance, have very little representation of like EDS in in film or television. Uh, But also what what then comes from a lack of that representation is people are saying, well, what is that? And then you as a person get to say, well, here's what it is, here's what it means to me. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're starting not from a concrete image that somebody has of what your disability experience is. You get to fill in the blank right. as opposed to have to rewrite a cultural script that film or television or or radio or whatever it is shapes for you.
0: Yeah. That is, and that's so true and so important because it it's like you really, you give them a real life example of what, um, you know, like you said, EDS or for spina bifida, for me, it's just what it, uh, you know, what it is for me and what it is for me is not what it is for everybody. <laughs> so yeah. it can look like many different things for every person you meet with that diagnosis, it can look totally different. So that's really, uh, you know, really important, uh, to share that. And another thing that, um, that I, I noticed and I wanted to touch on too, was, um, the villains in the movies are often, with disabilities and and they have, um, some type of disability and it often comes in the form of being disfigured in some kind of way. And I know recently, uh, it's within the last year, the movie witches that came out and the witches had limb differences. And that was a really big, uh, conversation and, um, really ups- upsetting for, for people with limb differences because it's, You know, I I tell the story of how and why I started Our View. And it's because um, my nephew, his classmates, were staring at me one day when I picked him up from school. And it it made me think recently about, like, movies like Witches. So if you're a child and you see a movie like Witches where somebody has a limb difference, when you're out at the mall or out at Target or wherever with your mom and dad and you see somebody in real life with a limb difference you know, as a child, you will most likely automatically relate that to the movie you saw. (laughs) And that is not, yeah, that's not cool. That's not, uh, you know, without a further explanation about why they may have the limb difference in the movie, which, you know, nobody wants to talk about that part, but um, (laughs) it would be very helpful because, you know, for me, I didn't pay attention to the kids staring at me if I was using my crutches or my wheelchair, but my nephew paid attention to it and he got really upset by it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's um it's it's really important that, you know, when people are making these films that they really pay attention to those types of things that uh especially something like a limb difference is something that you can um you know experience in real life. I, I think of um yeah. the Captain Hook from Peter Pan. You know, and it's just like if you have and and if a child sees someone with a prosthetic arm, which looks nothing like a hook, obviously, but, you know, they might relate it to (laughs) to that story and become very afraid. So it's really um, it's really important that that we, um, you know, try to work on, uh, you know, incorporating these these types of uh, disabilities into stories but in different ways and, um,
1: in different ways and less
0: negative ways, I would say, um, you know, in a more positive way of what, uh, you know, what people are able to do, even though they have a limb difference, for example, um, and rather, yeah,
1: I mean, I think that, I think, you know, whether we want them to or not, films teach us things and it's such a, clearly, it, you know, for children that is even deeper and, and more important, but but it works in, in all types of films, right? Uh, I mean, the one thing I am excited by is the fact that there was an actual conversation about that film in a way that I think even Anne Hathaway responded. She did. To the critique, right? Um, but the use of physical... Differences, disabilities, you know, quote-unquote deformities, facial scarring as a a sign of villainy is, you know, also has a long history in in film. Uh, Disability Studies scholars David Mitchell and Sharon Snyder sort of talk about this as a material metaphor, like a way to give flesh to something that's difficult to see, right? So we know that villains are villains because we can see that there's something wrong with them and that something wrong is, you know, often sort of internal, their villainy, their bitterness, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But it has over time become the shorthand in film or in the visual medium to sort of signify that, character flaw that gets represented visually right wow which is also like one of the things that like when you sort of think about it confuses me on some level is that disability has so many like there's so many things that are signified simultaneously right like disability at once signals sort of innocence and purity and then at the same time villainy and and bitterness, right? Like it can have so many coded right. meanings. Yeah. And and yet we we suddenly, like when we see it, we know which one of those things are being signaled. Right. And sometimes it's about the type of impairment or disability. Uh-huh. And sometimes it's it's about the narrative that it it sort of is situated in. But you know, in making in making Code of the Freaks. I think when we started to watch these films over and over and over again they they sort of blend in one another they but they also create this kind of confusion that's like is it really all the same hmm. in different variations like the disability is not actually about the disabled character person or disability it's always about something else right and in some way, that's what we were kind of trying to, trying to recreate that experience that we all went through when we were like, I've watched 200 films representing disabled people and I can't tell them apart, even though they're so different and they're depicting different things because on some level, they're always about stories inspiring either us as viewers or other characters in the film to like be better people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's violent. Right. Like, I mean, on some level, like we we talk about like, oh, inspiration is so, it's so tired and, and it's so, it's so disgusting because we don't always want to be inspirational all the time. But it's also like really violent Mm -hmm. for disabled people because it means we actually have very little say in how people see us or how we relate to the world. Um, and I think that's why it, it's so important to remake those stories to like track the harm that they do and open up space for new conversations.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, um, that, yeah, I never thought of it in that way that, um, <clears throat> you know, of it, of it being, like you said, violent, just, it's really uh wow. Yeah. That's uh a new a whole new perspective. I I really never thought of it that way, but that's really um so true. And and then the uh, I love what you said too about um, the way that disability shows up. It's just like it's kind of like okay, which which one do you want us to be? Do you want us to be the <laughs> do you want us to yeah. be the villain, or do you <laughs> want us to be the oh my goodness, it's so pure and innocent, or like Which one do you want?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: So it, it's, and the um, fact
1: that you can kind of slot these representations into such yeah such, such clear caricatures
0: yeah, yeah I was going to say it's clear categories where it's just like <laughs> they fit like right right into the the slot there for sure
1: <laughs> you know and when it doesn't you often get the like well it's not I don't see you as disabled right? Like if you don't fit into those categories, then you get the opposite with, uh, or the sort of total erasure of the disability. Like, right. oh, well, they're not really disabled because they don't fit in these things. Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. That's so true. <laughs> so true. <laughs> which uh, which actually, it, it kind of uh, leads into the next um, topic, uh, which is disability and race on film. So uh, for those of you... Um, listening and not watching the YouTube version of uh, I am African American uh, so those are the types of things I really pay attention to uh, when I watch a movie of how um, African American men people of men of color are uh, depicted in film uh, when they have a disability and um, two really good examples that were mentioned in the film um, in the code of uh, code of the freaks is uh, the movie Radio and the Soloist. So with Radio, um, which was, you know, one of those classic films that everybody <laughs> usually loves. And, uh, you know, they, it was mentioned in Code of the Freaks where it was, you know, radio was there for a purpose of to teach the town of, you know, the the white community of how racist they are. and um, And also at the same time, because he had a disability, you know, he still had to be like looked after and, and watched and monitored. Uh, I think is how it was described in, in the documentary. Yeah. And then with the soloist with um uh Jamie Foxx, where the um uh, the white non-disabled character comes to save him uh as the disabled black character. So um it it's it's something that I, I've had a discussion with someone um Uh, David, he was a guest on my podcast a few months ago, and we talked about it as being African American men um, in the world today and in the real world, in society and and in our communities of how we are perceived as being less threatening because we are wheelchair users and we are more accepted possibly in places where you know other african americans may not be as accepted openly um because we're seen as being less threatening uh because of our disabilities and i think that is um that's something that that really you know with the two examples i just mentioned that's something that's really shown on film as well and um i would love to hear your uh your take on on that
1: yeah, I mean, shown and reiterated, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think for those also who, I, I should say that I'm also a white academic speaking about this, and I have learned so much from the disabled people of color whose voices are in Code of the Freaks that are have sort of helped educate me about how these images have impacted their their lives and the way that they interact in the world. Um, and I think it was Sahai in the film who sort of talks about these depictions sort of alongside like the magical Negro, mm-hmm. right? Like depiction of that kind of cultural figure that gets wrapped into the kind of neutered, like disability comes to desexualize. and so much of the this sort of kind of cultural fear around men of color are about this sort of have been coded historically through that like sexualized violence right and and all of the really complicated and and again to talk about violence like the violence that is done through the depiction of images like radio or the soloist or and this was particularly relevant in kind of post world war II films
2: mm-hmm.
1: where like questions of like integration and segregation and sort of all of the anxieties around what it means for disabled veterans were sort of all circulating around the same time and there's a slew of films that used the disabled black man as a Quote unquote, safe cultural figure to teach disabled white people about their own racism to tell stories of happy integration
2: uh-huh.
1: in a way that, however, concretize those images as, I don't know, culturally palatable in some ways that, of course, just perpetuate the kind of white supremacy that's built into the film industry in general in the ways that I would say the shaping of images of disability in general are often crafted as white, right? Like, so we can't talk about images of black disabled men in film in the way that you're talking about without also saying that the images of disabled men are, sort of concretized in our national imagery as white disabled men, which is part of what allows the the sort of narrative of Rain Man and radio to work in the way that it sort of says, oh yeah, well, this intellectually disabled man in radio is here to, t- to tell the town, to teach the town not himself but through the white character who Mm -hmm. narrates the lessons that he has to bring right like it's all sort of wrapped up in the this sort of exceptional nature of some of these images and the work that they do
0: yeah wow yeah that's so it is it's so interesting and um I I really just I enjoyed the the your uh, movie so much just because it really brought things, uh, to my attention again. Like I think I, maybe subconsciously realized it and thought about it, and then seeing it actually played out in front of me on, you know, on on my screen, it was just like whoa, like wow, this is really this really does happen. Well.
1: <laughs> and like i think tj in the film talks about how like radio is is followed and managed in every course of right. his life throughout the film and and the sort of the happy ending feeling that we're meant to get at the end of the film when like radio stays in high school mm-hmm. and sort of coaches like like that's the horizon of his life right. like that's meant to be like the best case scenario oh look he's never I think Carrie says this too, like he's never allowed to grow. He's never allowed to leave. And, and he's contained. Right. In, in the structure of the high school.
0: Yeah. Where he reaches a certain, they, they reach a certain point and they, that's like you said, that's seemed to be the, you know, okay. Like he did it. He achieved this and that's it, (laughs) which is so, again, so, so, um,
1: not not, good. <laughs> not not good not good well not good. <laughs> you know, but like one of the things we were sort of also trying to uncover at, in looking at, at the the kind of history of film is also like where other people of color are, where other disabled people of color are, what other representations of disabled people of color, women of color with disabilities are, mm-hmm. and it's also. T- telling the lack of kind of iconic examples of other people, other people of color in films. So you have like the mad black woman trope, mm-hmm. but it's not often coded as disabled. And that's sort of an interesting thing to unpack that we didn't really get to sort of explore in the film, but you know, this is a case where erasure, I think, creates less of an opportunity and more of a kind of presumption of there are no, there are no Black disabled women. Like, I, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, like, I, I, what, what sort of message does this send about who gets to be disabled in our cultural imaginary, I guess? Yeah. And it's hard to talk about what isn't there, when
2: it's not right? There. Like,
1: <laughs> um, but, but this is an instance where, you know, you sort of say like, OK, well, what what harm is done by not by not creating a cultural imaginary or creating one that is doesn't read as disabled?
0: Yeah, that's. um, Yeah, that's again, that's something that I never, you know, it's I, I think it's a thing of where for me, I'll say it's like I always look for myself in a yeah. film so that it, you know, I don't notice all the time where. Like wow, there you can you think of a film where there is a disabled black woman um in it? And it's just like if you can, it's like very, uh, you know, very few. It'll take you a long time to yeah. to really uh, find it. So, um you know, so it's yeah, wow. I'm I'm so happy we're having this conversation. <laughs> this really has me uh interested in, you know, in, in other uh, other topics now so I'm really uh really excited about this thank you <laughs>
1: are are there films that you that we didn't talk about in the film like that you were like oh this is this is I'm sorry I shouldn't you're asking the questions no but, you're fine uh, you're fine <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> but you know like it's I mean especially thinking about kind of representations that you're looking for yourself in like were there, were there images that were either like particularly harmful that you're like, yeah, that's supposed to be me, but it's not. Or images that you're like, this is awesome.
0: Yeah. The one thing that I can always say, which has been a more recent um, topic of conversation is um, the fact that non-disabled people are playing disabled people um, in movies. And and I um I I have a friend who actually um she served as um I, I don't know the correct term, but she served as like a consultant, I guess would be the right word, for the show, um, Superstore that was um, on mm-hmm. NBC for that uh the character there that uses as a wheelchair user. And um he apparently told them that he would only take that job. He's a non disabled uh, person, so he said he would only take that job if they had someone who was actually a wheelchair user consult on the show. Um, you know, so I think those those types of things are really really needed. Like if you're not going to give the job to someone who has a disability, um, you know, at least have someone either who has that disability or you know can relate in some way to uh, share true authentic knowledge yeah. about the disability so that I think that's a big thing um for me that that really you know it, it bothers me a lot uh because yeah. they're you know and I get it you know the, anything many things can be said like it's expensive to live in New York and LA where most things are you know made and all that kind of stuff so you have the people that have disabilities that are on the have the limited income and things like that to support themselves to live in those big cities. And, you know, so that's why they don't try out and audition for, for things. Uh, you know, it, it can, I'm sure there are many reasons why yeah. um, people with disabilities are not often I mean,
1: chosen, but. Well, even the, the training programs, like the inaccessibility of like professionalized actor training programs or uh-huh. schooling, the inaccessibility of theater, even if there are training programs, like I mean, we can sort of unpack all of the layers and all of the barriers, right, to right. access to roles. Um, there's what's really interesting, though, in this, in in what your the story you told is that, like, the authenticity doesn't only have to come from the actor,
2: uh-huh.
1: right? It, and I think this. This is one of the things about the conversation around disabled actors playing disabled characters that, and this is an unpopular opinion, mm-hmm. in some mm-hmm. ways, that I'm like, I, it doesn't matter for the representation, mm-hmm. for me,
2: mm-hmm. it matters
1: for the access, for disabled actors. That's why it matters, mm-hmm. right? Because their parts are limited. So, I, I want to be clear, it matters, right? <laughs> but but right, deeply and in important ways, it absolutely matters. But the actor often doesn't have a whole lot of say in the story. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the the person might be a disabled person, but the narrative that's being told can still be incredibly damaging and incredibly inauthentic. Mm-hmm. That and for me, we have to sort of like separate those two things right. Yeah. Or I would argue we have to separate those two things because to say disabled actors playing disabled characters will create more authentic authentic roles, maybe I hope so, but if lots of other things happen and so like this, in particular, this piece of hiring a consultant to help make sure the the portrayal, is accurate is about the physicality of the performance. Sure, that, of course, is part mm-hmm. of how that authenticity might might get translated. But it's also about the story and making sure it's not participating in these larger narratives. And that is about a collective of disabled people saying, these are our experiences, these are the harms the stories do. So we need both of those things, I guess, is, Yes. Is,
0: yeah, definitely. I I definitely um agree with that for sure. And um you're really good with the segues because it just um <laughs> it leads to our next <laughs> our next topic. I don't know
1: that my students would agree with you. They would call it tangents, but I appreciate that. <laughs> no, I appreciate it because
0: I think it it does go uh it goes beyond that individual. Um, that character and it goes uh, which is our next topic of the interabled relationships that are told in these stories so it really um you know I always tell people like my life is not always the rainbows and butterflies and you know everything everything's everything's great and I'm always happy like no I could be (laughs) a pain in the ass sometimes
1: (laughs) and if I'm not feeling well and And disabled people get to be pains in essence, too, <laughs> yes, and it's just like just like everybody else and
0: so you have you know and 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 I wanted to talk about it in like the the form of relationship wise like a a disabled person in a relationship, a romantic relationship, but in any relationship, friendships and Um, familial relationships. It's like, no, sometimes you argue with people and sometimes you don't have a good day and you snap at people just like everybody else. But you don't often see those types of things in movies. It's, uh, you know, the disabled person doesn't really have a say and they're, um, you know, or they always need help and, and things like that. And the person is in their life to help them and to make their life easier and better. And yeah, sometimes people do come into your life to help you and all of that. And then other times, you know, for the, a large part of my life, it was like, okay, we will help you if you need it. However, yeah. you know, do what you can first <laughs> because we're not always going to, going to be here. Uh, you know, yeah. you will be in the house by yourself sometimes. So you will have to get things on your own and figure it out. And we'll help organize some things in a way that will help you. but. You know, we're not doing every little thing for you. So I think, um, you know, again, it, it does go beyond that one character who has the disability and uh, the people that are in the story with them in the in the film with them uh, for them to be authentic as well, and you know, show the frustration. And um, I I interviewed. Uh, we talked about uh, acting. I interviewed uh, Ali Stroker. Uh, A few months ago. And I've become friends with her. Yes. Yeah. I've become friends with her. She's she's really great. And she recently wrote a book. um, And in her book. She talks about. It's a teenage girl. Who wants to try out for um, a play. Which happens to be Wicked. And um, I love her story. Because it really. Tells things from her perspective. As um, the main character's perspective. But then it also tells. um, It gets into the to the minds of her parents and where her mom Mm. and, you know, where her parents are kind of like hesitant, like, Oh no, like you should do this instead. And you shouldn't, you know, stick to this kind of stuff. And it's like, those are real conversations that parents have with their kids. (laughs) So I I really think that's a a true, you know, a a really good representation of what, what really happens in, you know, you you have the child who has a disability that's like, yes, I'm going out for this play and I don't care if, You know, the main character has to fly on a harness and everything. And, you know, I'm just going to try out. Oh, figure it out. Right. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to try out for this and I'm going to get the part. And the parent is like, well, maybe you should stick to doing this instead. (laughs) I think it's like wheelchair racing or something that she does in in the book. (laughs) It's like, you should stick with this and and people who are like you. Um, You know, so it's like those types of authentic uh, stories where it's like, you know, you come up with these uh, conflicts with with your own family and your and your friends about certain things. I think those are. Uh, I think that goes into a big thing of uh, telling an authentic story as well. Uh, the characters who surround that uh, that main character.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, disability is like inherently relational.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It, it's it's lived in relation it's really lived in relationship to the world around us like whether it's the built environment right where we, we sort of talk about how the environment in itself can disable or enable us but it's also lived in relation to the people in our lives to institutions in our lives and i think so many of the stories that we tell are so many of the stories that we tell about disability only posit one kind of relationship, which is deficit-oriented, right? Disability mm-hmm. negatively impacts our relationship to parents, potential love interests, partners, the world around us. And so the stories that unfold about those relationships are only ever negative ones. Uh, or the relationship helps remove the negative aspects of disability, right? The sort of like right. love cures narratives. Yes. But, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but like all forms of relationships, like when you really start to get at the messiness of it, there's so many more complex stories that we can tell. Mm-hmm. But we have to remove this sort of deficit or negative view of disability to allow that complexity to come forward, I think. And I think that's part of what's so, what narratives, whether they're written or or film narratives, miss is the the messiness that the overlaps, the overlapping nature of the joys and the the heartache and the shit and the mm-hmm. the ways that you know sometimes yeah, yeah like my partner's like, it's just too much. And then, but most of the time it's like, how do we figure this out together? And what kind of intimacy is born from living in relationship to whatever my body needs or what her body needs or what our minds need or what her mind's, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, that's the stuff of relationships. And I think that's so much more interesting. Yes.
0: it is (laughs) it is it really it truly is so much more interesting and it's so much it's real it's it's real life and you know the challenges every every relationship you have has its challenges and its ups and downs and um you know to really show that i think would be very beneficial to uh to so many. Can you um, share with us uh, what is something that you would tell filmmakers, writers, producers, anyone who is in the film industry, uh, something that you would tell them that would help them make their films more authentic and inclusive of those who have disabilities?
1: Yeah, you know, you asked me this question, and I thought a lot about, like, can I, can I offer a really pithy and, and sort of like, Easy, easy to do. Uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna try. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, uh, authenticity is so complicated because
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's not one thing, right? And so I think, I think that starting point one is recognizing that what is authentic is not singular, right? I mean, we we talked about the harm of the single narrative, right? Like, disability is only Rain Man. So the first step might be to say authenticities or like I don't know how you make plural authenticity but like it's it's there are multiple ways to represent something in a way that resonates with somebody's lived experience and and to to remove the idea that there's one right or that one representation is going to get it right That's that's starting point one, I think, for me. And I think the second piece is that we think of inclusion as a yes or no question, right? Like either it's there or it's not there. But to me, the question is different. The question is, is it meaningful? How is it meaningful? Right, is it substantive and how is it substantive? And the industry is, doesn't get to be the one that determines what is meaningful and what is substantive, the community does and the communities do. So, right, you can't sort of pat, the industry can't pat themselves on the back and say, we got it right, good for us, we've hit inclusion. It's an ongoing conversation and recognizing that it's the multiplicities of communities that get to say, this is meaningful, this is substantive, that sort of get to set the measuring bar. Mm -hmm. And I think the third piece is that inclusion often feels like you get to come to our table, right like we'll include you in our table but letting disabled people set the table design the table so to speak if we're going to really kill the metaphor uh, you you end up with a much more interesting table and so like and that's that's worth like that's that's a new genre like that's or that those are stories that have never been told and To me, that is what's so exciting about what we could be doing. I think like there's some, so much amazing work coming out of disability art and culture, like new forms of movement being birthed by disabled bodies, right? New poetry being put out into the world by disabled minds and bodies. And when we make space for that, we can show the world things that hasn't seen yet. And I think that, I don't know, maybe maybe that's not inclusion. Maybe that's something else. But like, whenever I give talks about Code of the Freaks, people, people always ask, like, what do I want to see? And I sort of have come to the point of saying, I don't know what I want to see. And that's what's most exciting to me. Like, Like, what happens when you give disabled people the, the tools to write the script, give them all the material, like accessible equipment to make the movie, tell the story, act on the other side of the camera. I wanna see that. And I should give a shout-out to the Best Summer Ever movie because it's one of the closest that I've seen to representing disability community on screen.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Like it's a majority disabled cast and crew I mean it plays with genre in a way that reproduces a lot of the the sort of like narratives that you find in high school musicals and and sort of summer camp films but it it does something different and I think what's so cool is like trying to put your finger on what's different is disabled people were involved at every stage and so it looks different it feels different it felt like a like disabled community spaces that I've been in. It sort of felt like home in some way, which is really cool to watch.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I have not watched it yet, but I did hear about it. My, um, actually my mom told me about it. (laughs) 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 Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for that answer. And um, again, thank you for your time today. I really enjoyed this conversation. And before we do conclude this conversation, can you tell everyone where they can find Code of the Freaks, which I highly recommend everybody watch this film. You will definitely learn some things from it.
1: (laughs) Thank you, yeah. Um, So our distributors, Kino Lorber, uh, have information about the multiple ways that you can purchase the film. Mm -hmm. Um, It's available for rent on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, and other streaming services that are escaping me at this moment in time. On Canopy, for those of you that have a Canopy account, you can also access it. Um, Anybody listening outside of the U.S., uh, Reservoir Docs is our distributor outside of the U.S., and so they are constantly updating their website with information about where the film is available, screenings, and hopefully it will be on streaming services outside of the U.S. soon as well. Yes.
0: Well, Allie, I thank you for your time today and the information and knowledge you have shared uh, with our listeners. Again, I uh, encourage everybody to uh, purchase the film Code of the Freaks and uh, start conversations about it and uh, talk about it and... Share with us uh on our social media accounts that you've watched it and what you learned from it. But that is uh, you know, let us continue this conversation for sure.
1: <laughs> well, and we we do hope, you know, we made the film to be a conversation starter, not not the end piece, right? And so there we know there's so many more films we didn't get to talk about and new films and new representations that are coming out, you know, daily mm-hmm. in, in many cases. So um it's also been really lovely for us to see what people think of new films coming out and uh or films that we didn't get to talk about. So.
0: Yeah. Well, again, I thank you for this conversation and um I've really thank enjoyed you. it and I look forward to staying in touch with you and uh hopefully Likewise. being able to collaborate on something and uh you know, work together I'd again that. in the future. Yes.
2: <laughs> I'd
0: love that. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your uh rest of your night there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Our View podcast. Leave us a review wherever you listen and let us know what you liked about this episode. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and be sure to follow us on all social media platforms for more disability-related content at Our View for Life. That's O-U-R-V-I-E-W, the number four, L-I-F-E. If you listen to this episode on your phone, take a screenshot and post it to your Instagram or Facebook stories and be sure to tag us. We thank you for listening and take care.